Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, to escape the spotlight, she moved to France and dyed her hair. It worked. Sort of. Welcome, Molly Ringwald. A-okay. My guest today is Molly Ringwald, and Molly has been a performer for most of her life. Before she was completely verbal, she was already singing jazz and recorded her first album at age six. She acted in her first film, The Tempest, when she was 13, and for that performance, she was nominated for a Golden Globe Award. Many films followed, including Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink, The Breakfast Club, The Pickup Artist, Fresh Horses, Betsy's Wedding, Gem and the Holograms, and King Cobra. She's had an extensive theater career, starring in How I Learned to Drive, Tick, Tick, Boom, Sweet Charity, Modern Orthodox, Enchanted April, and Cabaret. Some TV credits include Different Strokes, Facts of Life, Townies, The Secret Life of the American Teenager, Odd Mom Out, and Raising Expectations for Canadian Television. Her album, Except Sometimes, is a collection of standards sung to perfection, as far as I'm concerned, and she's the author of When It Happens to You and Getting the Pretty Back. She has an advice column. She is a political activist. She is married to writer Panio Giannopoulos, and they have three children, including twins. In her spare time, she works for NASA. Welcome, (laughs) (laughs) Molly Ringwald. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're a busy lady. (laughs) That is, I think, the most accurate bio that anybody has ever read. Well, then my work is done here. <laughs> I mean, they can Google anything else that they want to know about you. Yeah, but but actually Google or Wikipedia, there's always something that, that is incorrect. But right. everything, everything that you put there is, uh, I mean, I've, I've obviously done more over the years, but everything you have is, is completely correct. For those of you who don't know, because you haven't read our journals, Molly and I first met Really, although I admired her for a long time and sometimes we circled each other socially, our real legit coming together was about 13 years ago when we both had teeny tiny daughters and we had a very mini playgroup for new moms, which consisted of 
three women, um, <laughs> our friend Jenny, who okay. sort of brought us together. And it was a very wonderful and foggy time. Yes. Um, it's an incredibly overwhelming, exciting time. And I think we were in the trenches together. And I look back on that time with such joy mm -hmm. and gratitude for having someone like you in my life at that time who was like, yeah, this is really hard. <laughs> really hard. I don't really know what's happening. I lived a very different life five minutes ago. Yeah, it was really scary. I mean, I think I think having children, no matter what, for anyone uh, is scary. But I think having the actress component uh, on top of that, I had all of these questions. I mean, I really felt like I had a sort of crisis figuring out, you know, well, what now? And I had always, you know, from the time that I was little, I was one of those kids that that really loved to play with dolls. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to be a mother. And I mean, my my biological clock was was deafening. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I ended up getting together with somebody seven years younger than me who really hadn't thought about having kids at all. I mean, he said, well, yeah, maybe sometime in my 40s. Right, right. That was my exact same scenario. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We connected yeah. on that. And so for me, it was just having a kid, having a kid, having a kid. And then and then I did. And then suddenly I thought, well, what kind of a mother am I? You know, this is this is like nothing I've ever done before. And I've always sought perfection of a sort in my yeah. life. I thought if I try hard enough, if, if I'm determined enough, I'll be great at whatever I do. And it was the first time that I really thought, I don't know what to do. I have great parents, but that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to be a great parent. And yeah, we became friends around that time. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I know that your mom was a pastry chef. Mm -hmm. Is that right? She was a stay-at-home mom. With um, a passion? With uh, just an incredible chef and, you know, had this monstrous cookbook collection. Literally, people would come in the house and say, wow, somebody reads. You know, it was like <laughs> wallpaper. And then you would get up close and realize they were all cookbooks. Um, wow. And she would read them all. I mean, she knows more about history than most people I know. Um, because if you think of what connects us, you know, one of the, the things that connects us is food. Uh, so it was something that she was always interested in, but she stayed home and was a stay-at-home mom. And then also my father is blind, so, uh, you know, the gender roles in some ways were reversed because, you know, she had to drive him everywhere. How did they meet? They met um, when my mother was, I think, about 18 or 19 years old, and my father was just one year older, and... Um, they were in Sacramento, which at that time, even though it was the capital of California, it was it was really kind of a small town. And um, my mother had never been with anyone before. <laughs> and, Sorry uh, for revealing this little known <laughs> fact, Mom. And she uh, she worked at the Foster Freeze with my Aunt Renee. Of course she did. And my <laughs> father was, at that time, a modern jazz musician. And he used to wear dark suits and he had, you know, black hair and he wore dark shades. And she was really intrigued by him. And so he ordered something and then she, you know, he paid and she gave him the change and he didn't put his hand out. And she got very angry and sort of slammed it on the table and then walked over to Renee and said, that guy is really rude. And, and Renee said, who are you talking about? She said, that guy over there. And she says, well, that's my brother. He's blind. 
<laughs> Are you kidding? Yeah, and because at that time, it wasn't easy to tell that he was blind, and he was this jazz musician, and it looked like he was wearing the glasses for effect. Then after that, my mom basically just stalked him for a year, and she's incredibly shy, very, very shy until you get to know her, and she basically figured out how to get close to him without really talking to him. So she became friends with my aunt and then would go to the house and then wander downstairs and just sort of watch my father. And then inevitably he would bump into her and, and think, oh, wh- who, oh, that's that's my, my sister's weird friend. And then eventually she finagled away into a car uh, with the girlfriend of somebody that my dad uh, played with. Okay. In the band. And so my dad just sort of made conversation with her and said, you know, oh, hey, I hear you like the hillbilly music. She does. She likes country and western. And she said, I do. And he said, well, what, what do you come out here to see us for? And she said, I come out here to see you. <laughs> and they were married three months later. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I always say to my mom, when I heard the story from the time I was really little, and I said, so, so what happened in between? And she's like, oh, you know, we just, oh, we just got married. Yeah, but what happened in between I come out to see you and then, you know, I never got the full story exactly what happened in between those, those you know, those months. But um, but they married pretty quickly and then had a child about, you know, a year later and then and then three more. And they've been married for 56 years. That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So when you were so little, but did you have a moment where you realized like, oh, my dad isn't like other dads where you had an understanding that he was special in all of these ways? To me, he was always special because he was just so different from everyone else. And it really, the the blindness was, I would say, a little bit low on the list. You know, he was, he was a musician. Um, you know, it was the seventies. He had a big bushy beard. I've never actually seen my father without a beard. He grew a goatee when he was about 15 so he could, uh, work in clubs. Uh-huh. He had dark hair. I mean, people, he was very striking to look at. And I remember my friends sometimes would be scared of him at first because he looked so different than all the dads right. looked in the seventies, you right. know? And also he kept different hours. Um, you know, he didn't wake up and go to work like all the other dads did. You know, right. he slept late and then he would pretty much work all night in clubs. And, you know, that's how he supported the family was, you know, as a working musician. And also he had a he had a different sense of humor. My dad has a little bit of a subversive sense of humor. And he just always seemed very confident. It seemed to me that he could do anything he wanted to do. Amazing. You know, he would he would get up on the roof and fix the antenna or he would, you know, he would put shelves together and you know, he, he's better at giving directions than than anyone else. And, you know, he did all of the the scheduling in the house because my mom hates to talk on the phone. And, you know, he, there was just never it was never really an issue. Um, and of course, I never grew up with a different dad, so I didn't right. really have much to compare it to. So was there a moment in your life, obviously being super talented in a lot of ways for a young person? Did you ever have to make a choice? I'm going to sing versus I'm going to act. I think I did feel like I had to make a choice, and it was really something uh, about the time, you know, when I when I sort of came of age. It was this weird time where, you know, in old Hollywood, everybody had to sing and dance and mm-hmm. act and, you know, do everything. And then, and then now it's almost gone back to that. I mean, I could do all of that, but I really felt like to be taken seriously as an actress that I just had to just 
focus on acting. And I once I did my first movie, I just I was completely hooked. You know, I had done theater, community theater up until then. I did Annie for 15 months when I was 10. And then I just made a choice that I was going to just pretty much shun the music as a career and just focus entirely on the acting. You know, it might have been something that had to do with just individuating also because it was something that I dad. did. Yeah. I mean, I'm very close to my dad, but I felt like I mean, I mean, I'm I'm being a pop psychologist mm-hmm. now, but I think there might have been something in that I wanted to do my own thing. And when I came back to it, it was once I had very much established myself and my career and who I was, and I was able to come back to it as an adult. The Tempest and Tootsie uh-huh. are two films that have remained with me always as kind of being perfectly made examples of what storytelling could yeah. be. How did you get that job in The Tempest? I was actually cast by Paul Mazursky. It was a Paul Mazursky movie. and Cassavetes didn't direct it. He, he just did got not, to be in it. Yeah. He got to be Philip, and um, who w- was based on Prospero, because it was, an, um, as you the know, a, a modern adaptation. How I got cast was I got very close on a movie called Shoot the Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it was between me and um, Dana Hill, who actually ended up getting the part. And I really wanted it. I mean, I, I I had done, I think, three callbacks. It was really, really close. I mean, they had to let us know, I think, at 12 noon on a Wednesday and 11.30, they called and said that I didn't get it. Oh and I was gosh. absolutely heartbroken. And I'm then, heartbroken for I know. you, and that was so long ago. I'm really sorry, Molly. I, it was really, <laughs> you know, okay. you know how the there's certain parts that you don't get, and they just stick with you more. More for me, the parts that I really wanted and didn't get mm-hmm. stick with me more than the parts that you know I turned down, and then they became big movies. You know, I think well, that was a choice that I made, right? But when it was something that I really wanted and I and I didn't get it, it was just it just broke my heart. But all of the people that were sort of close on that, all the kids that were close on that, um, came in to audition for Tempest. And I just immediately had uh, an incredible connection to to Paul. I mean, I was pretty much a shy girl. I'm, I'm basically a, an introverted person and always have been, even though I could get up and perform. And I think this is pretty common for mm-hmm. a lot of performers. It was a way that I could express myself and it was a way that I could be not shy and he was so amazing and playful with me and just really brought something out of me. I was supposed to be a New York kid and I had never been out of California. And he would play with me in a way and just really um, just I, I think really got my my personality. He would say things like, tell me your life story. You know, where, where were you born? Tell me everything. And I would say, well, I was born in Sacramento. And he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to I'm going to throw you a penny for every dumb thing you say. And and so I would keep talking and then he would just throw these coins at me. And, you know, his point was to see, you know, what my sense of humor was like, how much I could take, how I would respond, because this was supposed to be this tough, you know, very precocious New York kid. And so I knew I knew it wasn't coming from a mean spirited place. He was very playful. And so after he ran out of coins, he would just throw dollar bills and you know he just kept throwing stuff and then I just kept collecting it and I wouldn't give back the money perfect and I think it was like that was it I was cast (laughs) because everyone else ran out of that room crying and you're like I got $500 (laughs) it came from such a fun playful place and because my dad had always been really playful and and had a good sense of humor it just connected and, and it emboldened me and made it possible for me to try anything 
Were you driving the bus in terms of being a kid actress? Oh, yeah. I think so. I mean, I think I wouldn't have been able to do it if my mother hadn't been, you know, a stay-at-home mom. The level that my mom committed to to taking us around and doing all of that was pretty great. And then we also did, you know, community theater. That's how it, it really started. Me, my brother, my sister were all interested in acting, uh, and I was really the only one that stuck with it. We were all, I think, good and equally talented in that way. My brother got a part when he was, I think, 12 or 13 that took place in the 50s, and they said he was going to have to cut his hair, and he said he wouldn't do it. And my mom said, well, do you want to do this? And he said, not really. And that was it. He didn't do it again. My sister actually lost confidence when she went through puberty. She was an incredible actress. I mean, she was one of the people that most inspired me as a young person. She was about three and a half years older. And I watched her play Helen Keller, and she wouldn't let anybody go to the rehearsal. So the first time I saw her was on stage wow. in the light with her eyes. She has these very blue eyes, and her hair was, you know, out to here. And and she was so good. And she was about, I would say she was about 10 or 11. And, and then she went through puberty, and it was like all of her confidence went away. Yeah, and I and then I sort of became famous really young, and then I think that on top of that there was the sort of competition, and of you know people are going to compare us and all of that. So having a daughter now who's the age that you started in earnest, do you think about that, like seeing her now and sort of, wow, that was me, but I was a professional actress at that age. How do you wrap your brain around that? It's hard for me to imagine that I did what I did when I was younger, having mm-hmm. having these three kids. But I made a choice. My husband and I made the choice really early on that we were not going to allow our kids to be professional when they're young. Because? I mean, because it's it's hard and, and it, it is a business. And I think that there is a lot of rejection. And I feel like I'm a little bit of an anomaly, that I'm still working, that I'm pretty happy that I transitioned, you know, I just want them to, to have the opportunity to, to do whatever they want to do and make that choice as an adult. I just think it's healthier. And in fact, my parents say if they had to do it over again, they would have made the same choice because they've, you know, watched ups and downs with me and, and how difficult it can be. And also it's, it's different too to choose to be in the public eye in in this age in in the age of the internet yeah and you know the the phones and the you know the complete lack of privacy I feel like that's a decision that really has to be made when you're an adult yeah you were protected to a certain degree from the way it is now yeah did you feel that way though did you feel like you had to be aware of who you were all the time yeah I did I mean I I have always been somewhat self-protective, and I think that's a result of being in the public eye for a really long time. And also my mother was very protective of me and also of herself, and I think that I share a lot of, I mean, I'm a combination between both of my parents, Mm -hmm. but my mother always said, you know, never... Never put anything in print that you wouldn't want to see on the cover of the New York Times. You know, that was just in my head all of the time. You know, think think about how you want to be perceived. Think about the future. You know, all of this stuff was in my, and this was even pre-internet. 
you know, this was just protect yourself. And, and there's a difference between your work and who you are and make sure that you keep a certain, you know, element of yourself that's just for yourself. You know, I think it, it affected me a little bit. I think maybe I could have been freer, you know, in certain choices that I've made. Do you mean in your personal life, in roles that you chose? I would say that that... I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard for me. You know, I'm just sort of thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. But I think that, yeah, definitely in roles, you know, I mean, there were certain roles that I was interested in that I would have maybe have liked to have pursued that I didn't because my mother felt like it was it was unhealthy at that time. Blue Velvet, for example, a David Lynch film, which I think is a great film. Mm-hmm. And I read the script. You know, so that's an example, you know, where I would have been interested in that. But my mother was very protective of me. And and to be honest, Laura Dern, who ended up doing the part, is older than me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and and also was raised differently. You know, maybe she would have been more equipped to handle that. I mean, I think I could have, too. But these were choices that my parents made in wanting to protect me. So was your mom sort of your manager in terms of? how you made choices? I had an agent, and I don't think that they ever really officially considered themselves my managers. I think that they were just my parents first. And any choice that they made was, you know, my well-being was was the most important thing. Um, And if something didn't seem like it was healthy or right, then I wouldn't do it, you know. So, I mean, effectively, yes, they were managers. Did you go to high school? I did. I went to the Lycée Français. That's right. De Los Angeles. How did you end up at the Lycée? That really came about because when I had a studio teacher, um, you know, when, you on, when you're on set, when you're a minor or doing a play as a minor, you need to have a certain amount of school during the day. And I had a real connection with this wonderful woman named Irene Brafstein, and she had been Jodie Foster's teacher before me and then when Jody grew up then she became my teacher on every movie would she come with you uh-huh oh that's cool I would I would uh I I think there was there were three or four films that she did with me uh and then after me she was Winona Ryder's and then she retired um and she was a real Francophile and I had always grown up as a Francophile I think because my mom had an obsession with Julia Child um so and great. there was something about France that just really intrigued me and so I mean she was terrible with math <laughs> I'm not so good with math or science but we would talk about France and and speak French together and um, she was really wonderful for history and for writing and I was looking for a school to go to because the public schools were not good at allowing kids to go and then come back it mm-hmm. just it just wasn't working so I had I pretty much had to go to a, a private school but I didn't want to do a professional school so it became lycée and I started in the 10th grade and then graduated my mom calls it my honorary degree so when did you move to France well I think it was 94 what year was breakfast club I well I graduated from high school in 86 and I was shooting Pretty in Pink and that was really the last one. So I did Fresh Horses. I did um, an English movie that was based on a Graham Greene book with Robert Lindsay and Sir John Gilgood. Hacks. (laughs) Hacks all. Yeah. I did a lot of, uh, I think, interesting projects. I mean, nothing that had the same impact as the John Hughes films at all. And, And then I was going to do another John Hughes movie actually with Matthew Broderick. That was a movie that was called Oil and Vinegar. And what happened? And John wouldn't direct it. 
didn't want to direct it. He was producing it. And there needed to be some rewrites, or I felt like there should be some rewrites. Both of us did. And he didn't want to re- – John didn't like to rewrite stuff either. And so we couldn't find a director, and then I – went to England to do something else, to this other movie, and then, I don't know, it just kind of all fell apart. Did that end up being hard for you guys, having had this intimate relationship, working on all those films together, and then Oil and Vinegar not happening? Well, it was already complicated with John. I mean, he he was a complicated person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had already done Pretty in Pink, that he, which he did not direct, but he produced – and I was offered some kind of wonderful, which I didn't do. It was it was already a little bit complicated. He was very sensitive and took things personally. And, you know, my desire to work with other people. In addition, I wanted to keep working with him, but I wanted to do something else because I think I was worried about getting typecast in high school. And I was also in a big hurry to grow up. But, you know, it, I, I think it's it's funny, you know. In a way, when you think your your fear is that you're going to be typecast in some way, and and it didn't matter because those films typecast me anyway. I mean, they they have just taken on a life of their own. You know that I'm I'm still I'm still dealing with that. I mean, for a long time, people just assumed that I was uh, a teenager. You know, for years. I mean, and for a lot of people, that seems like oh, how nice to be thought of as a teenager. You know, but at a certain point, it's like okay, come on, I have three kids. Like, let's let's move on from this. Although you really do look amazing, I have oh. to say, you really do look almost exactly the same. Oh, more you're, beautiful. You're very kind. More beautiful. Speaking of beautiful, I loved your book, Getting the Pretty Back, so much. Molly, Molly wrote what I would call, I guess, a memoir about reconnecting with your essential self, your true self, um, especially for women, and in this case, after the birth of Molly's first daughter. I was so honored to even be included at all in the Getting the Pretty Back when you shared a ritual my mom and I would do every night. Molly has a section of sort of unique things mothers and daughters do, and I had shared with her once that every night before going to sleep, if there was any um, friction in our household, my mother and I would sit on the bottom step of our steps in my house in Teaneck, New Jersey, and she'd take a leaf and we'd turn it over so that everyone knew that the day was done and tomorrow was a fresh start. I Uh, love that. I love it too. And to see it in print and for my daughter who has your book next to her bed, she has a couple of books that she's kept for years that at night when she's having trouble falling asleep. And there's much of that book that was not meant for a tween. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, not at all. (laughs) No. She also has like what to do with your baby in New York City. Like she has these really interesting different friends of mine have written guidebooks or, you know, she loves reading and she's been a very mature reader. Uh-huh. Um, so it's always been hard for me to vet. I was like, all the light we cannot, let's wait. Yeah, like, let's, let's wait, wait on that. Let's wait on that. <laughs> but, you know, then they're reading some Holocaust fiction already, the Lois Lowry book. I'm like, yeah. oh, my God, that's just as intense and devastating. And so I think it's as hard long to as we're it. as long as we're there, I, I've sort of given up on on vetting because I think, you know, my, our kids are digital natives. They can pretty much get around any password that we, <laughs> we try to set up. I think for me, I just try to make myself available for conversation and to put these things into context. They're getting so much imagery and so much, you know, there's there's just a lot 
to take in. And so I try to just have that open conversation with her. But I have to say, I'm very touched that your daughter has that next to her bed. She does. And also that became the drawing as well. There's a drawing yeah, with uh, that Ruben Toledo yeah. did with the leaf. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that book was so or is so meaningful for Georgia, uh, my daughter, is because in some ways it is something she connects to the way your films are what so many young people connected to, which is feeling like an outsider or feeling disconnected from your true self, which is what you explore so beautifully in your writing. What is it about your films that you think makes them so long-lasting and so relevant today, if, if not more so? I feel like the reason why those movies have endured like they have, I mean, other than the fact that they're, you know, they're good movies, mm-hmm. is, is because all of these issues are still the same. And, you know, everybody has to go to high school. You know, they, they all form cliques. There's just no way around it. Girls are incredibly mean <laughs> at that age, way worse than boys. And ultimately, everybody feels like an outsider. Everybody feels like they don't belong. You know, and my my daughter is no exception. Um, I showed her Sixteen Candles first um, and then Pretty in Pink. And then I was sort of holding out on The Breakfast Club. And then she kept saying, you know, you said, I don't want to watch it with anyone else. This right. is always on the docket. You know, yeah. this is always yeah. one of the films that they want to watch at slumber parties. I really want to watch it with you. I don't want to watch it with other people first. And so then I actually ended up doing a story uh, for This American Life about showing my daughter oh, The I Breakfast Club. Oh, I to that. That's great. It was really an amazing experience. I decided to do, I was going to write an essay about it because I thought, why am I, why am I holding on to this? You know, eventually she's just going to watch it herself. What is it about this particular movie that I'm that I'm holding on to? So I thought that would be really something interesting to ex- examine. It was very surprising. I mean, it was a it was it was just a an incredible experience. I mean, it was surreal for me. Was it just the two of you? It was just the two of us. It was like a date, oh. and uh, you know, everybody else had to go out of the house, and we had it all set up. And I was also recording it not really sure how everything worked. I was terrified that she was going to hate it right. or that she was going to be bored, which right. would have been the worst. Mom, it, this is so dated. Yeah, this right. is so dated. You know, if she just sat there and started like texting her friends She's or something. Instagram. No, mom, it's really good. And like trying to make you feel better. Just tell me when you're on it again. Yeah, exactly. You know, she's she has she's been brutal. I mean, I've showed her things that I've done before and, you know, she she cannot lie. She really cannot lie. But fortunately, she loved the movie. But it was very interesting to to hear her take on it and what she understood and Mm -hmm. what she didn't and which characters she related to. It was it was really surprising. And I'm so glad I did it. It was a great experience. So now I'm going to do all of that with my kids. My kids are just now. My other two, my my twins, are, are just now starting to understand what I do. They knew that I was an actress. They knew, you know, people come up to me. They recognize me. But actually, this just happened recently. It's pretty funny. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had done, you know, Doc McStuffins, that mm-hmm. Disney show. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter, Adele, was a huge fan of Doc McStuffins. I mean, just absolutely adored it. Uh, and so I was asked to play a character on it. And this was about a year ago. We were still living in Los Angeles. And I said, well, I have to do it because of Adele. I have to do it. So I went in, recorded it, never told her or my son. Um, And then we moved to New York. And then they pretty much got rid of the character because they didn't want to record it while I was in New York. So I thought it was never going to run. And then I found out they were running it as a special guest episode. 
so I thought, okay, this is great. This, this is, is great. Amazing. Yeah, this is yeah. amazing. And so we set up the, you know, the the camera surreptitiously, and I, you know, and we got the the thing, and we we, you know, got it in the perfect place to start. And and then I said, hey, Adele, do you want to watch? Um, there's supposed to be this really good episode of Doc McStuffins, and she says, yeah, sure. And then she said, oh yeah, I saw that already. And I said, you did? And she said, yeah, I saw it when I was at Mom, Mom, and Pop Pop's house. That's my my parents. And I said, oh. Oh, well, I heard it. And I was kind of bummed out, you know. Well, I heard it was a really good episode. Oh, no, I'll I'll watch it again. It was really Mm. good. So we all sat down to watch it as a family. And then it got to the part where, and I play this ambulance little fox. Actually, she's very cute. A little foxy. Her name's Darla. And she's an ambulance uh, driver. And then I sing a little song and everything. And the second I started to, to talk, Adele said, you know, Mommy, that really sounds like you. And and Roman, my son, said, yeah. I, that sounds like you. And she said, yeah, we thought the same thing when we were at my mom's house. It really sounded like you. And then I was sort of smiling, and then Adele said, is it you? And I said, yeah, it is. I did the – she said, no, no, it's not. And then Roman's like, how did you get in there? How did you do that? <laughs> and they're, you know, watching the show and then listening to me and then pausing it and making me say the lines Their and everything. Their heads exploding. But they're still sort of not quite – they think that I'm I'm just fucking with them. And then, and then it gets to the end, and then the credits roll, and they say – They see Darla, played by Molly Ringwald, and Roman goes, oh, my God, you're so famous. (laughs) You're like, "Um, yes. Yes, I am. And thank you for appreciating my vocal artist work. You know, last night, you know, I just got back from California, and uh, I— Roman requested especially that I read the bedtime story, and I think— you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I just like I all of a sudden got more cachet right, like, in their eyes. <laughs> everyone, mother's going to read to us now. She's in Doc McStuffins. <laughs> I think that's really sweet, though. Yeah. When you went to France, were you less recognizable? I was. I mean, now those movies have become... So iconic yeah. that they they are international. They they were not at that time. You know, I went to France in the '90s, and the first thing I did was I I made my hair dark brown. I just wanted to kind of blend instead yeah. of stand out. Um, and and so it re- really was. I think the first time since I was really a kid that I was anonymous or I felt anonymous. I don't know how anonymous I actually was but that's the way that it felt to me and I and I feel like it was really important for my for my mind and for my growth and uh you know I really kind of had to make that decision again to be an actor to continue to act even though I would come back and do stuff it was like well is this really what I want to do for do my I, whole life yeah do I want to make a career change do I want to, you know is is this it and uh, you know ultimately obviously since I'm still acting I I decided that I wanted to continue but I really I really felt like that was a choice that I had to make as an adult in putting yourself out there as a singer how scary was that for you <laughs> Um, you know, I I think interestingly, or maybe not interestingly at all, but uh, for me, in terms of what scares me the most, mm-hmm. I would say writing's first, um, and then acting, and then singing. What's the? I think it's it's very hard to write well, and I'm very self-critical. Um, you know, I know really good writing, and I uh, and I know when my writing doesn't meet, you know, that standard. And I feel very exposed, mm-hmm. you know. I think when I'm when I'm acting, 
there's a character. Yeah, and a script and that a you're script. not responsible for. And, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I've also been doing it for a really long time professionally. But I, I still think that you need to be vulnerable and, and raw. Singing is something that I've just been also doing for a really long time. I won't say that I that I don't get scared or stage fright, but it's it's not exactly stage fright. It's more like creative energy that just wants to come out. So, mm-hmm. um, but I I perform with really great musicians, uh, and I and I also really like them. So if ever I feel like I'm disconnected at all, I just listen to them, and yeah. it's it's like being with a really you have great a scene actor. Partner. Yeah. yeah, a scene partner. I mean, it's like you can only really be as good as who you're working with. Do you still have to audition? Yeah, you do. I do, and I'm the worst. Do you know, do you <laughs> I'm the share, worst. Do you have any god every every <laughs> every audition? I think I've only actually gotten two roles from an audition and that was my first cuz I didn't audition for the the Hughes films. I just have never been any but one who does well when someone says prove it to me mm-hmm. you know there's just there's this like little and it could be ego I'm I'm sure it's ego that just sort of says you know well who do you think you are you know like, prove it to me <laughs> yeah prove it to me yeah, why why direct. am I on this yeah. <laughs> you know Let's trade um and uh Start and I throwing pennies yeah. at them <laughs> <laughs> I just not good and I don't enjoy it you know, some people I know just refuse to audition, won't do it, and then they just don't get parts or, you know. And I continue to do it because I think if you are an actor, if you call yourself an actor, it's part of it. You mm-hmm. should, you 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 know, you do it. But, yeah, there's been horrible um, auditions that I've done. In, in fact, a really bad audition I, I had to do um, with Matthew Broderick. And it was after we were going to do that movie together. And so then it was really kind of humiliating to be the one that was auditioning. And it was this French director, and and then the script was really funny. I thought it was called like "Welcome to Buzzsaw" or something, uh-huh. and, it, and it was written by somebody you might actually know. It was it was Matthew's friend Josh Kenny? Golden. Oh, Josh. Okay. And so this this French director sort of took it over and decided that he wanted to rewrite. And there there was there was something that they decided that they wanted to do in in the audition. And I was already thrown because my ego was just going crazy that I was in this position at all. And then he said, oh, I thought it would be really fun. Or I thought it would be uh, very funny if uh, if uh, right now uh, he, he takes the, the, he puts like a dog color around your your neck and he he pulls you like pulls you like you're like a, a dog you know it's uh and I was listening to him just like oh yeah yeah I mean okay yeah sure it sounds interesting just in in theory right and then I look over and and Matthew has this collar and he just looks like like so uncomfortable like and I'm just looking at him and I felt like I like our eyes connected and I'm just like, don't do this, you know. And I, and, and then another part of me is like, you should just get up and walk out right, right. now. You right. should just walk out. And then the other part of me is going, but you're an actor, you know, don't. Do, and I just had this the millions of thoughts just racing through my brain as this collar was being put <laughs> on my neck. Oh, my God. And then I think like I could not. I couldn't read. I couldn't think. I couldn't. I didn't know what my name was. Like all I could think about was, I have to get out of this room right now. I'm going. I'm or, or I'm going to like hyperventilate right. or something. Right. As you're sitting there. Yeah. As I'm sitting there. And needless to say, I, d- I did not get that part. <laughs> and it was a total that flop. Movie uh, <laughs> is a movie no one's ever heard of. 
you know, in retrospect, you know, I was in my early 20s. It was before I moved to France. And I really and, and I'm also I've I've also been one of these people that I, I sort of freeze when, you know, if somebody is, you know, um, confronts me or is very angry or I've, I, I, I sort of I'm almost like a deer in headlights. And it was just one of those moments where I was just what what am I supposed to what am I supposed to do here, and and I also I feel like you've you've probably experienced that. But when you're a woman, you always get this thing like oh she's such a pain she's in so the difficult. ass she's so difficult yeah. she doesn't have a sense of humor she doesn't you know she's so uptight and I always was very concerned about that. You know, which I'm just not concerned in the same way anymore. That's sort of one of the worst stories I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing all of your stories today. It was so great to catch up with you. I have missed you so much. And getting this time with you today was just truly uh, a pleasure. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Clouds can make the wind blow. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. Thanks for listening. <laughs>